jobs, a lot of the jobs that, say, politicians are fighting over are basically jobs that we shouldn't be doing, that humans should not be doing, and that we, in 100 years, might even be embarrassed that we actually had humans doing or that they were ever being fought over, you know, jobs like driving a truck or counting money as a cashier and mining. My gosh, mining. It's like that is not a job for humans. You don't want to send humans down below the earth where it's dark and hot and, you know, lung filtered dirty air. No, those that's a job for robots. The fact that you're fighting over those kinds of jobs means that we're just not thinking broad enough and, and big enough. And those are kinds of things that we should be giving to the robots as fast as possible. that I'm sensitive to it, but everywhere that I look in the media, almost every single day is an article about jobs, about how they're disappearing for the middle class, about how robots and artificial intelligence are stealing them, about how the gig economy is forcing people to do mundane tasks for less money. How much truth is there that our jobs are disappearing? And how much is technology to blame? I know just in my lifetime that my jobs have changed quite a bit. The tools I use to do them, where I do my job, how I find work, and the skills that I need to do it. Even our movies have gone from technology being cute robots and fun to ex machina and some pretty scary shit. So it seems that our fear that the singularity or technology is going to somehow make us extinct is at a fevered pitch. Well, what is the inevitability of the future of jobs? And why can't we imagine the future with our jobs differently? Well, it's hard to imagine talking to anyone better about this than Kevin Kelly. He's the co-founder of Wired Magazine, as he calls it, the senior maverick, and he has a book called The Inevitable, which actually came out fairly recently and now again in paperback. It's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. And what Kevin's done is he's really mapped the 12 major trends and forces that have already made themselves apparent and will definitively shape our future. Kevin's amazing at packaging all of those ideas that live within those trends and making those things digestible for us so they seem a lot less confusing since, as you'll hear, us humans are pretty horrible at figuring out what's coming next. In this conversation, we zeroed in on one of the major changes that's happening all around us. It really is a mega trend, and that's the future of jobs, how work is going to change and why. So if you're entering the workforce, you're in a job that feels like it may be made redundant, or you're just wondering where you should lean in, make sure you give this podcast a listen, and be sure you've got the leg up on what the future looks like for your and your children's jobs. 
This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. So there's too much to talk about, but I wanted to focus this conversation on the inevitable future of jobs. And there's a lot out there, it seems like right now, about tech taking all of our jobs. And before we go into the future, Kevin, isn't this something we've always been afraid of since kind of the maybe agricultural revolution or so? Absolutely. There have been worries that new technology would take away our jobs from the moment that we've had technology to a degree that we kind of call it technology. The Luddites were a famous episode in the past where they were smashing looms. They were smashing foot-powered looms um, that were making socks because um, they thought the foot-powered looms would take away the jobs of the hand knitters in the cottage industry. Um, And that's every time we have another device that automates work. Um, There are people who are afraid of their jobs. And in some cases, um, the fear is correct in the sense that that's the whole point of automation is to do things that we, you know, may not want to do or aren't very good at doing. And um, I think what's different now is the things that's being automated is not just the manual things, but things that seem to require cerebral attention, the other aspects of ourselves that we've always identified as human. And so it's not just the manual laborers who are kind of concerned. It's everybody else. It's the mortgage brokers and the um, day traders, (laughs) day traders. It's the web designers and the paralegals. And so, um, uh, and if you think about science fiction and the worlds of, robots and AIs, um, then you kind of think, well, gee, that's, that's, there's a lot of stuff that we do now that can be automated. Um, what are we going to do? Um, how are we going to make money? Uh, are we going to, you know, be thrown out of a job and homeless and on welfare and, uh, you know, drug addiction, you know? So it's like, um, the, the prospect looks kind of scary. Yeah, it seems like we really stink too at uh, as a as a species of thinking about the future, and a lot of the language and concepts and analogies that we use are even today seemingly stuck in the past, almost in the industrial revolution. So we think of things like efficiency or productivity or sales pipelines and marketing engines and manpower, and even all of our all of our language is stuck in the factory mentality. Is that part of what holds us back when we think about the future as well? I, I think it is to, to a large degree. Um, I mean, there's a kind of a curious paradox in which isn't the whole purpose of technology um, to make a world we, where, where we don't have to work. I mean, that was sort of the dream was that we don't have a job. And now when they take the jobs away, we're saying, wait, 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 um, that's what makes us humans, jobs. And so um, we, we don't – we have the idea of um, the kinds of things that we do are this idea of a job where you clock in and clock out and you don't like and you kind of – the bargain is I don't like my job but you pay me um, a lot for it and so I'll do it. Um, I think part of what we want to 
look towards the future is is a shift in that very notions of what we do with our lives, what brings meaning, what it means to work or not, um, and you know the very definition of what we might call a job. In preparation for talking with you, I remembered that I had a book from Wired back in 1996. It's not a book you wrote, actually, at all. I don't even think you had anything to do with it. Maybe you did. It's called Reality Check. Do you know that book? I did have something to do with it. Did you? Um, oh. Yes. And um, what what this book was for the listeners out there was uh, people making forecasts of the future, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, every year from 1996 until 22-25. There were predictions. There were predictions about when things would happen, and it would start off as a column in a magazine, and we kind of fleshed it out into a book. What was interesting about working on that behind the scenes was that um, you go and ask different experts about, you know, when some uh, science fictiony like thing would happen. You know, laser drills and dentistry, whatever it was, and invariably, um, the more expert somebody was the more that they knew about a particular field the more pessimistic they were about this ever happening hmm. and so they were generally wrong it's it's like you know if you'd ask somebody in the automotive industry when are we going to have self-driving cars they would say yeah yeah never or 100 years from now or something and it would be kind of people who are not exactly in the automotive industry who would say oh yeah we'll have it by you know 2020 and um uh, so that was just one of the things I discovered was that the more you know about something, the more you're kind of bound by you know what you think can't be done, but you're bound by the difficulty of it. And it's usually somebody who has no idea how hard things are mm -hmm. that comes out and does it because they didn't know that it was impossible to do. It reminds me of painting a painting when you when you if you've ever painted. Uh, a picture, you kind of back way up, look at the picture, then zoom way in and start messing with the details a little bit. And then you have to kind of back way up. But a lot of these uh, vocations and areas seem like they're so struck on the details that they can't back up and see the big picture themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the jobs, going back to jobs, a lot of the jobs that, say, politicians are fighting over are basically jobs that we shouldn't be doing, that humans should not be doing, and that we, in a hundred years, might even be embarrassed that we actually had humans doing or that they were ever being fought over. You know, jobs like um, driving a truck or counting money as a cashier. Um, <laughs> Gas attendance. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Th these, these are things that, that we really shouldn't be doing at all. And, and mining, my gosh, mining, it's like, that is not a job for humans. You don't want to send humans down below the earth where it's dark and hot and, you know, lung-filtered, dirty air. No, those that's a job for robots. And um, the fact that you're fighting over those kind of jobs means that um, we're just not thinking – broad enough and, and big enough. And those are kinds of things that we should be giving to the robots as fast as possible. Right. Of course, all the people in the Rust Belt would be disagreeing right now because they would say, wait a minute, this is, you know, what we do. And there's no vision of any other option for, for folks that are living in rural areas and doing that. 
And that's the problem is that there are no other vision. And, and, and the thing is, this is there's plenty of things to do. And, and, and I also reject the idea that people cannot keep learning and changing, change what they do. I understand completely the, the, the dignity in doing a manual job. I mean, I, I did plenty myself growing up. I, you know, I built houses. I, I worked in the nursery. So, so, I understand that dignity, but that doesn't mean, in fact, that we can't still do those kinds of crafts or have um, uh, honorable uh, manual labor. It only means that that's going to change, that that we will do different types. You know, the fact that there might be, you know, tens of millions of robots means that there's going to be needed tens of million robot repairs, repairers, people who who know how these things work and can keep them going and fixing, fixing them. And, and the, the point though, is, is that, uh, you have to be, you have to be willing to, to keep learning and, 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 uh, picking up new skills. And we also know how to do that. I mean, we have an existence proof in the U S of how to m- massively retrain people who may not have, uh, very many skills of one type and give them very high-tech skills of another and that's called the US military It is an expert in retraining and uh, people with new skills in mass and so what we lack is not the Expertise in doing this. Uh, we just lack the willpower political willpower to do it Yeah, and it seems like there's two things going on one is there's going to be a need to infuse that kind of soft skill and other skill training through a highly distributed population. The other thing that I, when I look around, it seems like there's this, and see if you agree with this, but there's this major trend movements, at least in the big enterprise space of, I don't know, I'll call it waste reduction. So in the nineties, it was just in time manufacturing, eliminating product waste. Then there's this digital thing that's eliminating information waste. And now when I look around at the gig economy and this whole access versus owning thing, it seems to be about eliminating, I don't know, job or skill waste or forced work versus available work. So are we going to become these multi-threaded kind of non-employees in the future? Isn't that what people want? I mean, how many people really want to be an employee? I mean, really, I mean, it seems to me everybody's dream is to have their own startup. Um, at least when I talk to the young people, there's nobody who's saying, oh, I really want to work as an employee for a big faceless company. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> nobody's telling me that. They're saying, no, I want to I want, I want, to have my own thing. So that is, that's the aspiration is um, not to have a job in a certain sense. And... I think the gig economy is, is somewhat, you know, playing into that. The 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 issue is whether that's sufficient, whether whether you w- would be able to get enough. I think, like you know, if if they were, if the gig economy was paying hundreds of dollars a day to people, there would be no discussion about whether it was good or not. <laughs> so it's a matter of just a matter of like, well, this seems like the the, the pay is too low, and so that is. Um, that's something that I think um, can also be changed. It's just that's uh, um, we're going to find out better what humans are good for. And as you know, for as a driver for Uber, again, I don't think driving a car is the best use of a human being. 
um, I think you're, you're likely to find that that's going to be replaced by bots, by robots and AI. There might be reasons to have a human in a car, you know, as a guide or there's certain aspects or certain importance, like a pilot where you have a tough air you have to get through. I don't know. But in general, um, gig economy is good, but not all the tasks that we now have in the gig economy are necessarily things that are the best use for humans. And we're going to figure out, you know, as we go along what those things are. And we, we honestly don't know. We, we, we have a very humans have a very muddled picture of what humans are about. We, we really don't know. And part of I think what we're going to be doing in the decades to come is constantly testing. It's like, well, what are humans good for? And not only that, but what do we want to be doing? How do we want to spend our day? People think that they know, but they don't really. As anybody who might have won the lottery, if you follow them, they have no idea. They thought they knew what they wanted to do all day if they didn't have to work for money, but they don't actually know. And it turns out they didn't have an idea of what they're going to do. So part of it is like ourselves, the AIs and the robots are going to help us decide who we want to be. We can't really do it on our own. We kind of we're going to need them to help us understand what humans are good for. So is the first chapter of that okay? The AI or the AI is such a loaded word. So it's like yes. smart uh, software or something. What, mm-hmm. what do you call it? <laughs> yeah, I call it cog- cognifying cognification. Um, it, it, it's making smarter, and we don't have a good English word like in smarten or smartify. It's artificial smartness, artificial learning. Um, It's all those things, but generally what we, once we know how to do something, we stop calling it AI, we call it machine learning or something. So AI is really basically the things that we don't know how to do yet, that we want to do, we can't. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and and the other thing is, is that one of my pet peeves is that intelligence itself is multidimensional. It's many things. It's many different kinds of things. And I think as we go along, we'll, we'll start to refine our language so that we'll understand, well, that's, you know, th- th- that things can be intelligent in different ways. Right. And, and that there are different kinds of smartnesses and that there's not this like single dimension where, oh, that's smarter than us. No, there's no such thing as smarter. There's just different than us. And, um, we'll, we'll begin to acquire the, the gradations, the continuum, the different varieties of intelligence, smartness, cognition, and, um, like Eskimos have, you know, whatever it is, 32 uh, names for snow, we'll have 32 different names for intelligences. Let's talk about this first chapter again. So is, is it okay, whatever that AI thing is, comes in, takes routine jobs, stuff we shouldn't be working on at all, stuff that's very replicatable, maybe even surprisingly so. And what's left is more artistic, non-repeatable, creative, empathetic type of work. Is that the first split? Yeah, I, I would say the distinction in that I use is that most jobs are bundles of tasks. And, um, so we have lots of different tasks and what a lot of this automation and AI and cognification is going to change is going to remake that, the bundle It's going to rebundle, remix what's in the job. And so that any task where the 
idea or the notions of efficiency are important. Those are the first tasks that would go to the robots and AIs. So if you have any kind of a task as part of your job where it's important that it be productive or that it could be measured in productivity or efficiency, those are the kinds of things that are going to go first. And the kinds of things that right now humans excel at are things that are inefficient. And people say, like, what's that? Well, like science is inefficient. It's inherently inefficient. Uh, innovation is inherently in, inefficient because you are trying stuff that doesn't work. If, if you have 100% efficiency in your, in your innovation, you are really making nothing new. And so um, uh, these, and these are things that humans actually like to do and would be very happy to be paid to do is to be wasting time, right? I mean, to be inefficient. Right. And so, and so, um, uh, so I, w I would say, yes, the first things, the first tasks that go are tasks where, whether you're manual or, or knowledge work, any tasks that's kind of where it counts whether you're efficient or not. So efficiency, efficiency and productivity are for robots and we're going to give it to them. Is the second part of this that what's left is back and let's call I don't know maybe gig is the wrong way to think about it but it seems like there's this underutilization of talent when you think about a forced kind of wage employee or somebody who's a full-time employee sitting there almost like the black car driver right that's waiting for the call and sitting there and just getting paid for it so is the is the other part of what's left over of this other kind of work, this idea, sometimes I have a picture in my mind of like a hard drive where there's partitions and it's just storing the information wherever it's stored. It just kind of combs through the human population, finds the very best people for certain non-AI tasks and gives them that little unit of, of thinking or work. There's certainly um, that element of, of matchmaking inherent in this kind of connective technology that we're doing that we're making which is that to to optimize the, the matching of those who have skill aptitude time availability and those who need it um which um it would you know in a kind of broad sense would be part of the gig economy where you assemble the team that you need at the moment a kind of on demand uh, you know a, 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 on-demand team mm -hmm. and, and that's one aspect of the way in which this technology can facilitate kind of new work and so uh, and, and this by the way is a is a huge problem in even very large companies i mean this is like you know like the the, the 3ms of the world or the ge's of the world with tens of thousands of employees is that they have trouble even matching their own expertise within the company with their own jobs that they have to do or, 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 you know, jobs for the customers. Mm -hmm. And so, so this is kind of like a, a thing that's sort of bubbling up first within companies just to do that kind of optimization and matching, but it, then it will spill over into, um, outside of companies, which says that why should I work for a company when I can just do that matchmaking directly, uh, again, in real time so that you're, um, again, you're, 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 uh, removing the, the the wastage but there's also another way in which um i think um this technology is going to uh, as a second round um uh propel new work and and that is is, is that we the technology 
creates in us the desire for things that we didn't even know we wanted before. Hmm. I mean, that's the, 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 there was no, there was no demand for online shopping or let's say no demand for, for uh, e-commerce e, e, e web designers uh, 30 years ago. We had, if you'd ask anybody whether we would even ever want that, they would, they, they would just refuse to believe that. And so the new technologies create in us a desire for something that we didn't know we have. And then once we have it, we just can't imagine life without it. And so um, a lot of the new work is going to come from um, the new technologies, including AI that, and, and VR and all these other things that will birth in us uh, desires and demand for things that have to be filled by people who are going to do work that we didn't even know we could do or wanted done. Um, and, uh, and once we have it, we'll just, we won't be able to imagine life without it. And so, um, uh, that's, that's the growth. That's, that, that's where all these new occupations are going to be born where the people who are now mortgage brokers or, or, you know, x-ray technicians, they'll become, they'll become those, those people and they'll be doing, um, new things, serving us in ways that we couldn't before. And I think the third, the third arm, the third vector of the new work is, um, something we are very good at is, uh, experiences is, is the move from, you know, if you make a graph of the climb in whether well, there's kind of a graph in the dematerialization of um of things and so uh, at, at the low end with a lot of materials is selling commodities mm -hmm. like coffee beans and then uh, just, just bags of beans and then the, the step up that in this kind of dis um dematerialization curve where you increase the value of it as you sell it as a product. So you refine the beans, you have ground coffee and that was, you know, that was a step up. You could charge more. It had, you were charging for more of the intangible of the added value. And then above that in a higher price and more and more dematerialization is a service like a Starbucks where instead of selling coffee beans or the product of, ground coffees, you're going to just sell coffee on demand. And then there's even another level above that, which is even more disembodied, and that is the experience. And so you have ecotourism where people take the trip to the coffee farm where the coffee is growing, and that's the most expensive and the most, de and the most intangible of it, and that's the experience. And that often revolves around the human presence of, of the farmer, or the people, or the guide, uh, and the other people with you. And so um, the experiences and human experiences of, of have being in a concert and having someone play the song that you've heard on recording but have it in real life, um, where it's face-to-face, -face, or the, house doc the doctor does the house call, or the five-star chef where you meet the chef. All these things are the highest-priced things. All the other commodities in the world through history are going down, 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 cheaper and cheaper towards the free, no matter what they are, copper, it doesn't matter. Those commodities are 
on a long-term drift downward in real dollars, but the things that are rising in prices are experiences and human experiences. And, you know, just the, just the value that we put on being around other humans and having the human contact and stuff, those will continue to increase in price and value and more people will, um, find their occupation in the fact that we are humans and occupy this kind of space and people really um, value that, particularly when they can get everything else that they need from machines for, for cheap. You know, I think if I'm listening to this, there's a couple things going through my head. One is I think, all right, what time period are we thinking about right in here? Does this affect my life? Should I be doing something with my own skills to change my skills so that because this is going to impact me or is this more about my kids or my kids' kids? And that that's kind of one kind of unit that I think of. It's like, oh, when do I need to do something about this? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's an absolutely fair, legitimate question. And I, I, um, the, the way I always think about these things is, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff is, is long-term off. But what I say is that you always want to kind of be leaning in the right direction. And um, so what I would say is like, you know, if you – whenever you have a choice, if you take the option that leans in that direction, it's not going to be all the way there. But if you take the the choice that leans in that direction, you're going to be in a better position to make the next choice that leans in that direction. And so, um, so I would say, yeah. So like, when, if you're if you're a college student thinking about what you're going to do, and so you want to think about, well, you know, how much of of this thing that I'm thinking of doing, how much of it revolves around being efficient. Then if if if, there are a lot, if there's a lot of that, then that would be something you want to lean away from. If you're if you're uh, uh, someone thinking about well what what can I do where there's where there's the experiential side to it, well you want to lean in that direction. If you're thinking about well I already have a job, I'm worried about um, keeping it, then I would say, well um, the skill that you really want to have is how to learn. I mean learning how to learn is really the only meta skill that they should be teaching in schools. And so it's like well when was the last time you learned something? Do you know how you learn best? So I would say if you already have a job, but you're thinking about, well, maybe this is not going to be around. It's like, well, you want to, you know, you want to uh, refresh your ability to keep learning because you're going to be learning something new next year. And um, uh, so, so that's what you want to focus on in like, you know, in the next six months is like, I want to make sure that I can keep learning and I learn well and I know how I learn best myself. So let's talk about education. I, I think that, based on what you've said so far, uh, is going to be super critical to not only take the folks, like you said, either now or in the future and give them new skill sets, but to be able to almost, I don't know, package and deliver skill sets for people so that they can be delivering the kind of non-repetitive uh, human jobs. That whole infusion of education is going to be super critical. Now, you, I know that... Uh, that you dropped out of college and you had a completely different kind of educational experience. So I'd, I'd be incredibly interested to hear how you think about education in the future and how all of that stuff starts to happen. Yeah. Um, education is kind of a broad word and it 
can encompass everything from, you know, preschool to college and postgraduate. And, and I think, I think we, we should like, you know, like snow and intelligence, I think we should, um, refine and dist- distinguish between those. So, you know, preschool, uh, K through eight, in my opinion, that's closer to just child rearing character development than it is to anything else. And there I favor a, a very broad um, outline where technology is present, but not all central. And um, I think what you're doing there is really trying to develop these how to learn skills mm-hmm. and which can be um, – uh, which don't necessarily uh, require uh, high technology or the latest things. In fact, they may, and many times, may benefit from doing things uh, in an old way because it really in- can encourage um, the meta skills of how to learn. Mm-hmm. When you get into, um, but but that's also, in some ways, not the education that we have currently. So so uh, the, the, I'm also saying that you know lining up kids and in rows and on desks and just, you know, reciting uh, the pledge. Reading, <laughs> the, the pledge and reading and writing is not what I'm suggesting. I'm just saying that it isn't necessarily kids sitting in front of computers or laptops all day answering, uh, you know, multiple uh, uh, answer questions. So um, in the, it, it, once you get into the higher levels, uh, there, there I, I, I think te- technology can play more of, of a role and um, make up for whatever deficiency the current system you're in. And it doesn't matter whether you are in the highest priced private school or in a struggling public school or wherever you are in the world, um, every you know, schooling system is far less than perfect. And, and part of what we're trying to do is, is to um, compensate for them in, in some ways. And I think technology can help level a lot of that access and um, allow the strongest to move at their pace and give help to um, those who need help. And I think, um, it's not the only thing, but I, but I do think there, um, can be a, a bigger role for technology in the higher grades, but that's, but I think the same overarching philosophy should be w- really what you're going to be learning in addition to whatever factual knowledge you need to survive in the world is the ability to understand how you learn best to be able to keep learning all your life and to optimize the way that you personally learn. And that, by the way, is is an incredible challenge. I mean, that is, there are very few adults that I know who actually are aware of how they learn the best and um, can continue to learn all their life. It's it's so, so this is a high bar. And, um, but I think that's, where we're headed to with the kind of changes that were coming, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you, whether you know Java in school or whether you can <laughs> program in Ruby and Rails because next year it's going to be something else. You're going to have to learn a whole new thing. It doesn't matter if you're really kind of the world's expert on the smartphone because 
in five years, it's going to be VR and you're going to have to learn everything new again. So, um, and that doesn't matter how old, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're going to have to keep learning in a massive way. And so, um, this is the meta skill that we really need to be teaching at all levels. Although I think the way we teach it will be different depending on the age. I wonder what you think about that old term, high tech, high touch today. Um, the, the idea that the more tech there is, the more now remote we are from each other, you know, sitting behind screens and, uh, potentially as these jobs change and we're doing this work from very remote versus urban areas, you know, how does that high touch part look in a future that's filled with AI and distributed and a lot less interpersonal contact? Yeah. I mean, this is, um, John Nashbitz, the megatrends author came up with this as a megatrend, which was, there was a proportional, um, relationship between the demand for as high tech came along, we demanded more high touch. And, and, and I think, you know, there's to me no better example of that than burning man, which is this, you know, um, over the top, um, instant city in the middle of the desert where all the Silicon Valley people who spend their hours sitting in front of a computer go and wrestle with, um, dust storms, heat, flamethrowers, uh, uh, flamethrowers, <laughs> you know, get naked. So right. they're, they're, they're totally living in their bodies. And that's to me a, a direct correlation. Um, and, and some of the things I was talking for more about experiences are I think, I think the more people spend time in VR, the more they're going to actually demand face to face encounters or, you know, being in the wild. And I think in general, the, again, not in the next year, not in the five years, but on the long horizon of hundreds of years, I think our cities are going to become more and more urban and uh, the, the countryside will become more and more wild and we'll have, you know, as, you know, there'll be a kind of a, as people become more modern and, and, um, uh, cityfied that they will have a corresponding need to spend time in the wilderness. And, of uh, uh, you know, the same with VR is as more VR. I, I will expect face to face, meetings will become more valuable. I'm not necessarily they'll become more prevalent, but they're going to become more valuable. And, and the people who run those and the people who, who offer that touch aspect um, will have a livelihood. Um, you know, it's like, you know, going into the restaurant, meeting the chef. Most of your food might become, be, you know, the uh, robots may run McDonald's. And maybe most of your meals are being made by robots. But because of that, you're going to pay a lot of money to have a meal cooked by our human chefs who will come out to the table afterwards. And, and, and so I think, I think, it, I think Nashbit's insight is, is, is prevalent and true and will continue. And, that, and I also I think that's important for people thinking about the future of work because I think – there is going to be um, that demand for the high touch. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is, is first of all, everyone needs to take a deep breath and realize this is not a one-to-one -one, uh, job replacement thing. It's been going on 
since we decided to draw fences around things and start farming and it will continue on the same trajectory and even though you can't imagine the new the web designer job in 1982 um, it doesn't mean that the end of the world is coming and we're all going to live in some star trek universe where uh, it's a cold horrible future no quite the opposite i think that most of the like if we, our cities even with the advent of you know complete driverless cars taking over there'll be some changes but for the most part their cities will still be recognizable as they are today because that was the industrial revolution which rearranged the matter in our lives but that's sort of over it's mostly done um what we're talking about is kind of a revolution in the intangibles and how we understand who we are, how we spend our time, what we're doing, what the significance of that is. And and that's a complete a re rearrangement. But I think what it is that most people want is um, they want a, a, a variety of things. They want cheap food and they'll take it from robots, but they want an expensive experience of a tasting menu and they'll pay for that. So the money that we save on buying the frozen food we'll use to spend on a food experience. You're going into the restaurant that's all dark served by blind people, whatever, you know, it, it's, it's, there'll be more and more of, of that, that we move to this. Um, so we have, both increasing high tech and increasing high touch. And I think that's a w w great way to put it. Is there, is it possible that the AI will actually help us imagine, imagine the new jobs that we need to have? Absolutely. And the way people are going to be surprised about how creative the AIs are. And you'll say, well, won't they take our creative jobs? So here's the thing that it's very hard to, to convey, but it's very important to understand, which is that their thinking is alien thinking. They think differently than humans. And their creativity, while they're going to be incredibly creative, will be a different kind of creativity than ours. And that's actually not a bug. That's actually a feature. That's, that's actually their value is that they think differently than us. They'll be creative differently than us. Um, part of what, we're doing um, is as humans is that we're going to make up jobs that we're going to do when we first make them up because we don't know what we want and we don't know how they can be done well. But once we figure out what it is that we want, then we give them to the robots because they're efficient at it. And so in a certain sense, the way I look at it is our job as humans in the long run is to invent jobs to give to the robots. And so we're constantly coming up with things, trying to, using the, their help, being creative, using our friends, using the usual mechanisms. We're inventing new things that we want. And once we kind of invented them and figured it out, then we give them to the robots to make and do and keep going. And then we move on to like, well, what else? What do we want next? What can we imagine? What, what hasn't been done before? And so um, our job is to keep inventing jobs to give to the robots. I hope I make it that long. The book is The Inevitable. Kevin Kelly, thank you so much for being on Grow Big Always. The key word is keep growing. And so um, I have enjoyed this conversation. You gave me a couple of good new ideas. And um, I want to thank you for having me on. Okay, as a tech nerd, I'm pretty giddy to have had Kevin Kelly on the show. So a huge thank you to him and a bucket list checked for myself. 
While you're checking things off your bucket list, be sure to visit growbigalways.com and there you'll see a super easy way to sign up for our weekly dispatch. Hit your inbox with that week's latest show. It's a little behind the scenes on the conversation, who's coming up next, and an opportunity to send me a note if you've got any feedback. And for those of you who are sharing the shows out on social media, telling your friends, emailing it to folks, thanks a bunch. It's my way of getting paid and it keeps me going. So for everybody out there, thanks for listening. 